the screen and pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we commit the remainder of this service to you. Help me to preach clearly. Help us all to hear clearly. And I pray that when the final amen is said, that we will leave this place today more in love with you, more in love with each other, and more equipped to serve you to the best of our ability, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you today um, an old sermon, um, and it's like we said earlier, it's not a leftover. It's not because it's Thanksgiving Sunday or past Thanksgiving Sunday. It's because there's about four or five sermons that I try to preach every year or at the very most every two years. Um, sometimes I'll take parts of those sermons and put them in other sermons. But it's because of the importance that I feel. And the name of this one, for those of you that maybe are fairly new to the church and you haven't heard it before, the name of it is Helping My Fellow Believer. And that sounds like such a general uh, broad uh, title, and it's because it's a general, broad title, but it's a very powerful concept. Let me tell you the story of this sermon. I was in seminary and um, went to hear a man named Ray Levang. He was, he's one of my top three favorite professors through the years, an outstanding, brilliant man. Um, just, I can't say enough about him, but he was a tremendous man. And I went to hear him preach in a very small church. And I went there and I sat in the church and I thought, this is little more than a storefront church. Um, and these people are probably not used to the kind of intellect. I wasn't downgrading the pastor. I just was, you know, talking about the, the professor I said, they're probably not used to the, the way this man talks because he, he, was, he was way above us. Uh, and you had to really pay attention, not that he was hard to grasp, but he was just so, so smart. Um, I one time asked him why he didn't use notes and he kind of hemmed and hauled around. One of the other professors told me he knows so much that notes would make him go way too long. So he, he says he just always preaches out of, or teaches out of overflow. Well, he stood up that day and I prepared myself for an intellectual theological feast. And he stood there and looked at those people. And that grandpa from Minnesota said, children, I want to tell you today five ways you can help each other. And I thought that doesn't sound very deep theologically. But he unpacked these five points. Now, the meat on the bones is mine, but the skeleton is his. And we sat there for about 45 minutes and listened to five practical ways to make our relationship with each other better. I, I never got past that sermon. I realized that 
there is so much. Remember, I've talked to you about the one another's in Scripture. And uh, he taught me about the one another's. He taught me about the value of loving each other and of helping each other. And I want to tell you, you can pretty well, you can pretty well put churches into two categories. And I'm not talking about Protestant and Catholic. I'm not talking about high church and low church. I'm not talking about Reformed or Arminian theology. Those are distinctions, usually having to do with style, maybe some doctrinal points. But churches that really seem to understand the nature of Christianity are churches that get the commandments that Jesus said were the greatest. When asked what the greatest commandment was, we'll read it in a minute, Jesus said the first thing you've got to remember is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul, your mind, and your strength. The second commandment, he said, was to love your neighbor as yourself. Now he's quoted a lot uh, usually just the second part of that where a social gospel is sometimes preached that says, well, if you just love one another and be kind to one another, don't offend one another, everything will be great. That's hardly what Jesus said. He said, number one, you've got to have God as the preeminent love in your life. And then right on the heels of that, you've got to love one another with an otherworldly kind of love. It's not just throw a buck in the Salvation Army kettle. I think you ought to do that. It's not just being kind once a year. I think we ought to do that too. But it's a lifestyle where you live for one another. And I realize that that is so easy to be abused or to make demands that are counterproductive. It's not easy but I want us to talk in honor of uh, the Lord first, but also in honor of Dr. Levang. I want to talk to you about um, five ways that are solid biblical ways that we can help each other. You say, oh, that's good. I'm not in for something difficult and heavy. The loved ones, I want to tell you this. If you can do these five things, it's not hard. It's not hard. It's impossible. You have to have the grace of God. I'm, I'm not just giving you a, yeah, I need to try to do that more. I hope we'll all say that. But I want you to understand, I'm talking about investing yourself into a lifestyle that requires, it requires an incredible grace of God because you and I can't do this on our own. We can't do this on our own. It's got to be a gift of heaven working in us. Let's read a few verses together. Peter says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Um, it's interesting here. Peter says, if you really want to walk in love, don't just do a few good things. He says, you've got to purify your life only purity toward God enables us to have the kind of power to love the way we ought to love. It's like David Wilkerson said years ago, love is more than something you feel. Love is something you do. Peter would say in the next chapter, show proper respect to everyone. Proper respect to everyone. That's not the common 
atmosphere that we find ourselves in today, whether it's online and political circles, even among churches, we have lost the, the, the motivation and we've lost the instinct to show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. Uh, those are some things that we need supernatural help on. Showing proper respect to everyone, loving the brotherhood of believers, fearing God and honoring the king. Now, 1 John is uh, very, very convicting. We know that we have passed from death to life because we have our membership cards. No, because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need. Now there's nothing wrong with having material possessions. But if you see your brother in need and don't have pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now, just broadening our foundation before we get into this message, there are two world-changing commands and there are two world-changing possibilities, two formats, uh, two venues where that command can be lived out. Here's the world-changing commands. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? We, this is what we talked about a moment ago. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Um, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Now, what does it mean the second is like it? Well, it has to do with love, but I think also both of them indicate something that has to come with the help of the Holy Spirit. You can, you can do good deeds and be a racist. You can do good deeds and be a criminal. But to really love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, that takes the grace of God. He said the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says something so amazing. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, Jesus was saying the, the, this thing called religion, we would call it Christianity. He said it doesn't work. Jesus was speaking in terms of Judaism. It doesn't work. All the prophetic studies you can do, all the rules you can learn, it all breaks down. All the regimen you can keep, it's worthless unless you love God supernaturally, and unless you love your neighbor supernaturally. I've been to churches that are excellent in their doctrine, but I never felt love for a moment. I never felt valued or esteemed for even a moment. And I want you to know that churches and Christians, families, you can be as straight as a gun barrel theologically and just as cold and empty on the inside. So it's not just orthodoxy. It's not just platforms. It's not just campaigns. It's not just projects. There has to be a profound love 
for the Lord and for each other. And it's got to be something that, that it, Jesus said, it's not just being good to people. He said, even the Pharisees love each other. But he said, you've got to, then he talked about loving your enemies and those that are outside the realm of what we call lovable people. So there are two world-changing commands. And it's interesting that in regard to this, Jesus said there are two ways that the world can be changed. And, and in fact, the wording that's used indicated that it will happen. The first way that the world is changed is at the physical return of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 12, Revelation 19 to 21, the scripture tells us that when Jesus appears, when he comes in the clouds, the unthinkable is going to happen. Israel the, the, the national state of Israel that is subject to a double blindness right now. And I don't say that in any way anti-Semitic, not at all. It's a precious, precious promise. They are blinded as we all are because of their fallen nature. We are all blind to the grace of Jesus until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we wrap our arms around Jesus. But there's a double blindness on Israel. They are being blinded uh, because of their initial rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't mean Israel's under judgment. I don't mean Israel is evil and we should never tolerate anything that is anti-Semitic. We should never do that. But I understand there is a second blindness that because Messiah has been rejected, but the day, the Bible says there is a day coming when they will see him and when they see him, God will pour out upon them a spirit of grace and supplication. And their eyes will be opened from this double blindness. And all Israel shall be saved when they see Jesus in his glory. But there's something else that can also open the eyes of the world. And we don't realize how powerful it is. He says in, uh, in John chapter 13 and in John chapter 17, he says, all men will know you're my disciples by your love. By your love. It's the same thing that Peter said. And he says a couple of times, uh, Paul does, it, 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 well, not just Paul, especially to those who belong to the household of faith. He says, be loving, be kind, and especially to those that are in the household of faith. Because all men will begin to understand the nature of your discipleship when they see your love for one another. He says in Galatians 6.10, Paul does, So then, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, with this lofty goal in mind, I want to give you Dr. Ray Levang's five suggestions for fulfilling Christ's command to truly love one another. And I pray in the name of Jesus that they will put some practicality into your life as they did mine, that they'll put some, uh, some loving goals in your life as they did mine. Now, again, they're simple on paper, but they're not easy. Remember, each of these has to be linked with the grace-giving uh, Spirit of God. Here's number one. Assume your fellow Christian has problems you know nothing about. Now, all of these things are in particular. I, let me give you the context where this is most likely to happen. 
when someone mistreats us, when someone misspeaks, when someone has hurt us. Now, if, if people aren't hurting us, we don't usually take offense. But when someone acts out of character, when someone doesn't act the way you want them to act, when someone's unappreciative, and how many of you know, and I don't look at anybody, but how many of you know sometimes God's people are not as nice as they ought to be? Now, it's hard for you to grasp because everybody in this church is wonderful. Nobody in this church ever has this issue, but there are other churches out there where God's people sometimes don't act the way that they ought to act. And we have got to learn, if we're going to walk in grace, that sometimes things happen because your fellow Christian has problems you know nothing about. This is something that I know of it happening at least four times. This or something very similar to it. I was pastoring a church in another state. Someone came to me and said, Pastor, I, I, I want you to know I'm so mad with so-and-so in the church. They're supposed to be the spiritual leaders. They're teaching the biggest Sunday school class, this woman and her husband. And they, they, they are just hypocrites. They're one thing in the church and one thing outside the church. And I, I, I couldn't believe that. I said, well, what, what are you talking about? We were in such and such a store the other day. She looked at us, looked right at us. And we waved and, and even blew her a kiss. And she didn't even smile or acknowledge us. She looked, just looked past us. And I said, well, maybe she was looking at somebody else. She said, no, I looked. There's nobody behind us. She looked at us and didn't pay attention to us. And I don't want to be a part of a church where people live one thing in the building and live something else out of the building. Well, I thought that is very uncommon. That's very unlike this family. So I found a gracious way to kind of hem-haw around and investigate a little bit. And I asked the lady what happened. And she said, oh, pastor. She said, I didn't have my contacts in. And I said, I didn't even know you wore contacts. She said, not many people do. She said, it makes me, uh, glasses make me look older. And I just don't want to wear glasses, so I wear contacts. But I'd just been to the eye doctor, and my eyes were, eye, were dilated. So between my eyes being dilated my contacts not in, I'm lucky to have found my husband who was close by. And I went and told the person, and, you know, we, it, it got straightened out. But here was a person ready to, or a couple ready to leave the church, uh, had not paid tithe for a couple of weeks, they were ready to count all of us as children of hell because they had been slighted in a store when there was something going on. They had no idea. Now, that, that happened to me one time. I, I went out without my glasses. And without my glasses, I'm, there are people in here, right? No, it's not that bad, but I, I, I have to, you know, I have to get up kind of close sometimes to see who I'm looking at. And, and I've, I've had people upset with me. I mean, it was, it was no big deal. I, you know, I usually caught it and explained what was happening. But here was a family that was putting poison in the hearts of their grown children, poison in the hearts of their, of their young grandchildren toward church and toward this wonderful family. And it was all because she was going through something they didn't understand. Uh, it's like a story in the Old Testament. This wasn't even a godly king that did this, but uh, Samaria was under siege and had been under siege. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel as opposed to Judah. 
And they were under siege. And it got so bad that they had run out of food and that there were people in the city that had even resorted to cannibalism, if you can believe that. I can't fathom being hungry enough to do that, but it was happening in the city. And people were even eating their babies, just absolutely unthinkable. But that's what was going on. And one day the king came walking out on the wall, as far as we can tell, probably either trying to get a look at the army or trying to encourage people. And he was there with his crown and with his, with his kingly robes and a couple of unhappy people. Uh, and, and you can understand why they were unhappy, uh, having to resort to cannibalism. But they looked out their window and they started taunting the king. They said, you don't understand the trouble we're having. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us have done that. We go through a tough time and before we know it, we've stopped calling on the Lord and we've started saying, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the difficulty I'm going through. And they said, you, you ought to be ashamed walking around with your crown and your royal robes like nothing is wrong while your people are starving. And the king did something that quietened the women and made everybody understand the severity of the situation. The king, the king who appeared in his robes like everything was fine. He reached up and ripped his robe open. And kings don't do that and kings don't dress like this. But underneath his robe, he was wearing sackcloth and he'd been covered with ashes. And loved ones, the people began to understand we can't make the mistake of misjudging somebody because of their outward appearance. We know that. We say, yeah, the Lord told um, to Samuel that, or, or told Samuel that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So we've got to look on the heart. Loved ones, sometimes you, you, you need to take that from the other perspective. And sometimes somebody will look like everything's great. Ryan will be leading a song and you'll look over and say, they wouldn't be raising their hands if they had had the week I'd had. They wouldn't say amen to a wonderful Thanksgiving. Pastor Corey talked about if cousin Eddie had come to their house. I mean, nobody understands, but loved ones, sometimes people, depending on their personality, they can still wear their kingly robes. They can still wear their best emotionally. They still can take a beating and come looking like everything's fine, but we must not fall into the trap of judging them because we don't know what's going on on the inside. Now let's take it a step further and make it the application here. I'm saying this, when someone mistreats you or misresponds to you or forgets something, the, the list can go on and on and on and on of our offenses. But it's so easy to take offense when somebody doesn't act right because not that they're evil, not that they need to be judged, not that they're mad with you or not that they've hurt you in any way, but because there is something going on underneath the robes that you don't know anything about. So when someone acts strange, when someone acts harsh, when someone acts whatever, at least allow for this possibility. There's something going on in their life. 
that I don't know anything about. Now let's go to the second thing that Dr. Levang taught. He says, whenever you are in a difficult situation with people, demand more of yourself than you expect of your fellow Christian. I think of Jesus in the garden. Guys, the, 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 the world is at stake here. I am about to take on the sin of all humanity. Can't you pray with me for an hour? Just all I'm asking is an hour. Jesus knew that the guards were coming. He said, can you pray with me for an hour? They couldn't do it. And finally, Jesus, what he said was, just go ahead and sleep. Get your rest. It's almost as though Jesus were saying, well, go ahead and get your rest. You're going to need it. Jesus expected more of himself than he did of his disciples. All he had asked, he was sweating great drops of blood. You would have thought that would have shaken them into uh, alertness. But they couldn't stay awake. And let me tell you this, I know it doesn't sound very positive, but the probability is that every one of us will get into a situation where those closest to us let us down. It might be your spouse, it might be your children, it might be your parents, might be your pastor, might be your pastor's members. But the probability is that like Jesus, every one of us is going to be let down by people at the moment we need them the most. But Jesus took it all on himself. He said, get your rest, get your rest because you're going to need it later. Uh, I, think of, I think of Paul and the episode with John Mark. You know, Mark is the one that wrote the gospel of Mark. Mark had a very significant role in the early church. He was a tremendous assistant to Peter and to Barnabas, and for a while to Paul and Barnabas. Uh, the, uh, the second gospel, Mark, even though most scholars agree that the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter. It's the stories that Peter told and Mark recorded them. Mark filled a big role in the church, but when we first meet him, boy, he let the apostle Paul down. He went with them on their first missionary journey and um, he left. We don't know why he left. Uh, you know, he, he could have been sick. He could have been sick. We know from Paul's life, he's the kind of guy that just kept pressing through everything. But Mark could have been sick. He could have been homesick, wanted mama. I mean, I, we don't know. Uh, I'm thankful for the things in Scripture that are left a question mark for us. Sidlow Baxter put it this way. He said, those things are there because God wants us to have enough information in the Bible to make our faith intelligent. But God will strategically leave things out so that our faith has to grow. See, my biggest battles have been, I know God can do this, why doesn't he? I know God can fix that, why doesn't he? Well, that is where we have the greatest growth in faith, if we'll let it. That's a tough thing. Jesus prayed for his disciples at the toughest moment of their ministry. He said, Lord, I prayed for them. And he said to Peter, I prayed for you all that your faith will not fail. There are things that will make your faith fail, even temporarily, unless the Lord gives you grace to go through it. And, and um, we don't know why John Mark left, but he left. And when it came time for a second missionary journey, Barnabas, his name was Joseph, but Barnabas means encouragement. 
And, uh, you know, some have called him Uncle Barney. He's the uncle that goes around giving everybody encouragement, believing everybody had a second chance. And when he said, let's take Mark, you know, I see something in him. He saw something that Paul clearly didn't see. He said, I want to give him a second chance. And Paul said, no, I'm not. And Paul and Barnabas seemed to be inseparable as a team, but they had such a disagreement because of the disappointment that Luke, that Mark caused that the two great workers could not work it out and they split and they went in different directions. And we don't know who was right. On Paul's defense, the story follows Paul, but you also got to remember that was the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and the author of Acts went with Paul. Um, in the defense of Barnabas, he was, he was headed for an effective ministry himself back, back home, and God used him to build churches back home. It wasn't like Paul was used of God and Barnabas wasn't. God used them both, but John Mark was going to go this way instead of this way. Now, again, talking about what ifs. At the end of Paul's life, the man that he said, I will split with my friends over. If, if he goes with you, Barnabas, I don't go with you. Paul said, send Mark to me because he's profitable to me for the ministry. Now you say, well, that's because John Mark grew up. Maybe, maybe. But we don't know. We don't know. I do know this. I wonder what could have happened if Paul had remembered that there was a time in his life that nobody would let him preach. Nobody would let him in the church. Right after he got saved, he was such a persecutor. He, got, he was all excited. Hey, I've turned to Jesus. Let me give you my testimony. And they said, no, don't tell him where we meet. Why? Because some of those people were widows because of, of Paul. Some of them were orphans because of Paul. Some of them had loved ones in jail because of Paul. And they said, no, 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 no. We don't want him anywhere around us. It's a plant. It's a trick. But Barnabas, who believed in second chances, vouched for Paul. The only reason Paul was accepted in the churches is that somebody was willing to take a chance on him, a second chance that God's grace is tremendous. And Paul, as a result, became the leader of the early church for all intents and purposes because somebody said, I'll give you a second chance. Well, I'll tell you, I look at the book of Acts and I think Paul forgot that. I think he forgot that he was where he was because of the ministry of Barnabas. I, I can't say that for sure. And, and I want to be sure that all of heaven understands I'm speculating because I want to have dinner with Paul when I get to heaven. And I don't want to be put on some long wait list because of my views here. No, I'm teasing. That would never happen. Um, he, he's perfect. He knows I'm right now. But, um, but loved ones, I want to tell you the danger, and Paul illustrates it. I think even if Paul was wrong, Paul did redeem himself. He did call for John Mark later. But, but hear me, the thing that we need to take away from this second point, demand more of yourself than you expect of your fellow Christians, is that if you're not careful, you can be 100% right 
about something, but your attitude make you 100% wrong. Boy, I have faced that in ministry. I've been 100% right, but my attitude made me wrong. I've had people come in with long, long, thus saith the Lord's. They're right in what they're saying, but their attitude, we dismiss them immediately because their attitude has made them wrong. We, we, we'll take the truth, but we won't take the attitude. And you say, well, you ought to be able to take both. Well, we do as much as we can, believe me. But we can't, we, we don't live there. We don't live there. And you can either be the kind of person who believes you are right and say, I know I'm right and demand your rights. You can do that. But I'm telling you, you'll, the day will come when you will look back on your life and you'll, you'll see a trail of dead bodies and ruined ministries and bitter people and lost opportunities because you have to be right when so much more is at stake. Paul almost did that. He almost did that. You say, well, what's the option? Well, you can demand rights or you can surrender rights. I'm not talking about doing wrong. I'm not talking about disobeying God. We, we, we should never do that. But great men and women of God understand that sometimes more is expected of me than I need to expect of them. Sometimes somebody's got to be the adult in the room when there is a conflict. I'm talking about conflicts that can't be resolved. Now, now, I mean, some things, you know, some things are very clearly right and some things are very clearly wrong. Uh, that's, that's why I say we'll never bend on things like the inerrancy of Scripture. We'll never bend on things like the efficacy of the blood of Christ. We'll never bend on that in an attempt to be accommodating. We would never do that. But sometimes you're in situations where you don't know if it's this way or this way. You can make a case for this. You can make a case for that. And I'm not talking about doctrine as much as I am stuff that we do. But sometimes you've got to say, I believe I'm right. I believe this is best. But I will be the adult here. I will let us try this other approach. Now, it's going to be, I want to tell you what happens if you do that you're going to find out that surrendering your rights is exhausting. It is exhausting. But I want to tell you, demanding your rights is exhausting in a different way. It's exhausting. Number two, I want to tell you that it only works, surrendering your rights only work if you're in it for the long haul. Because you could go weeks or months or years, or decades, you could go a lifetime before somebody says, you know, you were right and I was wrong. See, most of us don't mind demanding more of ourselves if we only have to do it for a few days. See, we're, we're, we, are, we are sprinter forgivers. But you may have to be a marathon forgiver. You know, Jerusalem had all of these incredible monuments and they kept the graves of the prophets all white and shiny. Jesus even said, you keep those things. He said, the problem is you're like the tombs of the prophets, all shiny on the outside, but inside you're full of corruption and death. 
you, you would think that Jerusalem honored all the prophets. And I've, I've noticed looking at those tombs, thinking of the prophets, I'll tell you where you became honored in Israel. And Samuel might be the exception. But you became, if you were a prophet, you became honored in Israel. You only had to do one thing. Die. As soon as you were dead, you weren't endangered anybody. So now you are honored. So if you demand your rights, it's going to be exhausting. You've got to be in it for the long haul. In fact, I will tell you this. Some of us who may be right about something, or maybe I should say some of you, I don't, shouldn't include myself in that. Some of you that may be right about something, you may not get affirmation until you get on the other side. When you read Hebrews 11, what you find, all of those guys had one thing in common. They had, some of them had things in common with others, but there's one thing that all of them had in common in Hebrews 11, Faith's Hall of Fame. None of them received the full promise in their lifetime. Now, God was going to keep their promise, but some of them had gone by way of the grave. Some of them won't see the vindication that God had worked through them till the end of the church age. That's a message for another time. So what's number one? Assume your fellow Christian has problems you know nothing about when they act out of character. Number two, when they act out of character, demand more of yourself than you do of other Christians. Here's number three, learn to trust your fellow Christian. You say, well, they need to earn that trust. I know some trust needs to be earned, but some trust needs to be because we're family. I understand how difficult that can be. And I will admit, this is the one where it's toughest to draw the line. But I will tell you this. I think the poster child for this point is Ananias in the book of Acts. Now, not Ananias and Sapphira. They're poster ch children for something else. But Ananias that prayed for Paul to be healed and set him on his ministry. Now, we know that Ananias was a devout man. Number one, the scripture says he was. Number two, the Lord said one word, Ananias. And Ananias had a track record with the Lord that he, that he recognized his voice. Now, if, if there's some of you that feel that you, you, you're not, you don't hear the Lord well, that's okay. It, it is, it, it's, it's, it's out of our control. It's, 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 a, it's an art, not a science. And some people are more disposed to hearing clearly than others. That doesn't mean you're less or you're bad or you're better or whatever. It just means we all have the gift of faith. We all have the way God deals with us. But I do know that the Bible tells this. It says that the more we walk with the Lord and the more we're in his word, the more we are training ourselves to hear him. So Ananias heard the Lord and he said, there is a man that I want you to go pray for. He is Saul of Tarsus. And he began to tell Ananias about the ministry that he was going to have. Apparently he explained the blindness and all of this stuff. And there were two miracles in that chapter. Uh, of course, when he was prayed for, Saul's eyes were healed and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. The other miracle is that Ananias went. He said, Lord, you know, I'm, I can see him tying his tennis shoes, getting ready to go. I can see him saying, Lord, I, I'm, I'm going. I, I know the address. I'm going. And I'm going to do what you say. But I, I just want to be sure I'm hearing clearly. This is the man 
that wreaks havoc everywhere he goes. This is the man that we tell our children, if they see him, run. This is the man that's been the worst news for the church in years. And, and you're telling me to go lay hands. Jesus, I remember when you healed people from afar, maybe you could just heal him without me. Go no, the amazing thing, he went and, and you know he had to ask the, the, the guards around Saul that were hostile to the churches. He had to get permission from those guards and walk. those guards wouldn't have left him. And he walks in and this is the amazing thing that he does. He says, Brother Saul. He put all of his doubts aside. He put all of his uncertainties aside. And he said, if we're going to be family, we've got to put ourselves all in for each other. And he said, Brother Saul, and he says, the Lord who appeared to you on the way has spoken to me. And this is what he told me to do. And Paul was healed. He was filled with the Spirit. And Paul began his ministry. It's not easy. You say, well, Pastor, there's people that I've trusted that let me down. Oh, we need to have a, a Judas Sunday and just talk about all the people that have let us down. I mean, we could do that. It wouldn't be edifying. The probability of betrayal is high, but there is the compensation factor. Uh, if you're treated wrong, Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. King James uses the word reckon. He said, I reckon, that's a math term. You know, the old timers, in, uh, at least where I grew up, they, well, I reckon so. That means, I've, you know, all things put together, yeah, I think that's going to be the, the right thing. He said, I've reckoned. He said, I put down the disappointment. I put down the pain. I put down the betrayal. And I put down uh, God's promises. He said, and when you do the math, I am persuaded that what God will do for us on the other side is, is, is not even worthy. I mean, it is, is so much better that our sufferings are not even worthy to be compared with the glory. I love the way the Phillips translation puts it. In my opinion, wherever we may, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. You say, Pastor, but it's so, you just never know. I know, I know. I, I was stopped at a gas station. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was down on Bush River Road years ago. And a man had a, in a car, he had his wife and I think three kids, if I remember correctly. He said, sir, my wallet was stolen. I have no money to buy gas to get to my home. And I have no money to buy food for my children. And I was standing here and I felt the Lord impressed me that I could ask you for help. And I thought, yeah, you know, I really did. I thought, yeah, yeah, you're in the Bible belt and and, uh, I, I've, you know, I've got a preacher haircut. You think that, you know, he's, I, and he said, is there any way you could help me? He said, I'm pastor of an Assemblies of God church. And told me what town in Florida, I, I don't even remember. And he said, but I have nothing. He said, if I could just get a tank of gas, he said, it might get us home. 
<laughs> or at least get me to a friend I know um, down the road. But my children didn't have breakfast this morning. Could you please help us? Now I'm about to tell you how long ago this was. I, I filled up his car. I filled his car up. He was almost on empty. And I bought meals for this family of five. And a person I was with said, you are a sucker. He said, you just got taken. This is how long ago it was. Hey, $20 is a small price to pay to be able to sleep tonight. You know, so I bought a tank of gas and a meal for a family five for $20. It was back when Abraham Lincoln was president. And, <laughs> you know, I thought my friend kind of taunted me a little bit, you know, good naturedly, but was taunting. And I thought, yeah, I probably got taken. Weeks later, I got a letter from an Assembly of God church in the town where this man said he lived. I opened it up and he was indeed the pastor. His name was on the letterhead. And he said, thank you for believing a stranger. Um, and then he quoted the scripture about sometimes we entertain angels unaware. He said, you didn't entertain angels, but you entertained a pastor. See, I, I knew that Assemblies of God pastors have their fellowship card. And so I said, where is your fellowship card? He, he said, it, I left it in my desk in my church. I don't know of any pastor that does that. Um, but he did. And then I, you know, I should have thought if he lost his wallet or, you know, he wouldn't have his card anyway, probably, but he couldn't prove he was, you know, I started to give him a quiz. Who was the first general superintendent of the assemblies of God? <laughs> he said, I just wanted to say thank you for believing in me when you had no reason to believe in me. And inside there was a check from their church to our church. And I can't remember if it was 500 or $750 for our benevolence program. And I thought, I told my friend, I said, it's a good thing when you know you hear God. <laughs> Let me tell you about the second time I heard God. We had, uh, we had, um, uh, what do the kids have? Fine arts. We had fine arts competition for the state here. And um, if, you, if you've ever been here during fine arts, every room is packed, every room is used. And there was a man that came in. He was a preacher too. He had lost his wallet too. He had to get home too. And he just needed money for gas and for um, some food for his family. And um, he was in the office where our office is now. He was sitting in there. And I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm the one that has excellent discernment. I'll, you know, if somebody had come to get me and said, I'll, I'll handle this. I, I know how to handle this. And I listened to him and he sounded very convincing. And um, we, first of all, if there are any thieves listening, we don't keep money here at church. But um, we, we do have a little metal box with just a little bit of petty cash. Um, believe me, it's not worth you breaking into steel. So... I thought, well, I'll, I can give him enough for gas and, and food out of petty cash, and I'll write a note. I said, you stay here. He's in the office. I said, you stay here. I don't have a key. I'll go get a key, and I'll come back because I am God's man of faith and power. I always get it right. I came back. He had taken two computers out of the office. He had taken the briefcase of our guest speaker, and no telling what else was there. I remember thinking he even took the candy that was on one of the secretary's desks. 
You say, Pastor, I thought you always got it right. Yeah, sometimes I'm a sucker. Sometimes I'm an absolute sucker. And um, you say, well, that would make me not want to help anybody. Well, yeah, but the first one makes you want to help everybody. You see, what you have to understand is that you do have the risk of being taken advantage of if you make up your mind you're going to trust your fellow Christian. But I want to tell you, it's better to be done wrong than to do wrong. It's better to be taken advantage of than to take advantage of someone else. And that's just part of it. You, you've got to decide. I, I, I may get burned from time to time. I'll try to follow the Lord. I'll try to follow principles. We've had, it comes up every two or three years. Somebody will corner our people in the parking lot, usually at Walmart, and say, Pastor Stephen uh, told me to tell anybody from the church that I need help. And loved ones, I, I, I just have to tell people every now and then, I don't tell anybody to tell you anything. If someone needs help, I would never send them to the Walmart parking lot to wait for you. Uh, if anybody comes to the church for help, we'll help them the best way that we can. But there are scam artists out there. There are liars and thieves out there. There are boogers out there. Let me tell you, there are boogers out there. And you're going to be done wrong sometime. But you cannot withdraw and never do good because there's the risk of, of being taken advantage of. Okay, you, you look like you're getting nervous, so let me go on. Learn to trust your fellow uh, Christian, uh, Christians. Um, Paul entered this relationship with the churches of Galatia. He said, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. What we can make of this is best we can tell is that Paul was preaching in the southern part where there was, it was marshy land, malaria was a common occurrence. Paul probably had malaria or something like it. He went into the inland highlands to get out of the, the sick bed that was part of the southern area. And when he went there, he had something, might have been malaria, there are other things that could have caused it, but something had affected his eyes. And this is what Paul said. He said, I preached the gospel to you at first because I was sick. And though my condition was a trial to you. In other words, Paul says, the, the sickness I was dealing with made life hard for you because I had to have extra care. But you did not scorn me, you know, like say, if you had faith, you'd be healed or despise me, but received me as an angel of God or as Christ Jesus. He says, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul said, you didn't know me from anybody, but you took me in and you loved me. And if it were possible, you would have taken my sickness and infirmity on yourself. And I want to say thank you to caregivers. I want to say thank you to people that care for challenging people. I, I want you to understand that God knows the labor of love that you were in. And he knows that it's not always easy. Sometimes it is an, a trial to take care of people, even if we love them. But God says, if you can just learn to trust people, if you can learn to embrace people as though it were Jesus himself. See, that's what Jesus said. He said, when you visit someone in prison, when you give someone 
a cup of cold water when you take care of someone when they're sick. He said, it's as though you do it for me when you do it to the least of these, my children. Now, let's hurry up because y'all are, y'all are slowing everybody down. Uh, we, we walk and uh, we learn to trust. We walk, I, 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 mis, I misread, I meant to read number four. We walk in covenant love with our fellow Christians. Um, that's what Paul did, or, or the Galatians did with Paul. Think of Moses and Israel. There was one time Moses was so angry with Israel. His attitude was, God, kill them. You've killed some, now just kill them all. Open up the ground, swallow them, kill them. I'm tired of these people. I can't carry this load anymore. And God said, Moses, I can't do that. Because then the people will say, God had power to get them out of Egypt, but he didn't have power to get them into the land. I can't do that. And Moses calmed down. Then another time, God was so mad. He said, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to kill every one of them. And I'm going to start over with you and your two sons, Moses. I'm going to make a nation out of you and forget the rest of them. And Moses says, God, you can't do that. If you do that, the people are going to say you could get us out of Egypt, but you couldn't get us into the land. In fact, some theologians have said if Moses and God had ever been on the same page with Israel in the wilderness, there would be no Israel today. Moses took a huge step. He said, Lord, forgive them. Forgive them. And if you can't, basically he was saying, then let me perish with them. I want to tell you, some of you have stuck with a church going through difficulty. Some of you have stuck with a family going through difficulty. Some of you have stuck with a ministry going through difficulty. When everything within you says to run, you stuck with it. I want you to know God honors covenant love. Now here's the last thing because we've got to stop because that turkey is going to start rotting if you don't eat it today. Here's, here's number five. If you misjudge, okay? Now, now, what have we said? Assume your fellow Christian has problems you know nothing about. Demand more of yourself than you do them. Learn to trust. Walk in covenant love. But when all is said and done, you're still going to make a mistake from time to time. If you misjudge your fellow Christian, misjudge on the side of mercy. See, there are going to be some things where you've clearly been done wrong. There's going to be some things where there's a clear path to right and wrong. But there are going to be some situations when you can't figure out what just happened. You cannot figure out what just happened. I think of David with Mephibosheth and Mephibosheth's servant Ziva, who was a servant to the household of Saul. Whenever David left, these two men blamed each other for not giving David the support that he needed. David didn't know who was lying and who was telling the truth. And the scripture doesn't even tell us who was lying and who was telling the truth. And David made an incredibly wise decision. He made a decision that showed mercy to both parties and made both parties responsible for their actions. It's phenomenal. And sometimes that's the best you can do. Sometimes that's the best you can do. And it brings us back to John Mark. I just wonder, I just wonder what would have happened if Paul had chosen to misjudge on the side of mercy. Again, I don't know all things. I know this. 
I learned about this firsthand when I was in seminary. I had been a youth pastor and had had some pretty good success. And the pastor told me, he said, uh, when you get out of school, I'd be interested in you coming back. And um, I said, well, thank you. Then when I went home for the holidays, before I began my last semester, my last full semester, he said, when you come home, because he knew I was coming home to be ordained. Uh, he said, I know you're not out of school till August, but when you come home in May, write me a letter, send me your resume, confirm that you would be willing to work here because I want to offer you a job. I think you might be interested in spending the rest of your ministry here if, if I'm hearing the Lord. But I need you to write me and send this, this, and this. So as I got closer to ordination, gave him plenty of time, you know, several weeks, um, uh, a couple of weeks anyway, I wrote the letter, I enclosed the envelope, everything he needed was in that letter, I put a stamp on it, <coughs> I put it in the mailbox, and I thank God that I was going to have a job when I graduated. Well, I got there for ordination, I showed up in service, and not only did he not offer me a job, he barely spoke to me. I mean, it was just, he barely spoke to me. And I tried to strike up a conversation, and it, it was clear he had something else on his mind. And I thought, well, maybe he just changed his mind, but he should at least tell me that instead of leaving me hanging. He said, well, what'd you do, Pastor? Well, I did what a lot of Christians do. I decided to demand my rights. I decided that nobody should treat me this way. I decided that I deserved better. Here I am, an honor student, and I've got a history at the church. I ought to at least, if not a ticker tape parade, at least be acknowledged, you know. So I got upset with him. He got upset with me. During ordination, he didn't speak to me. I didn't speak to him. Why? Because I was right. I was right. Why didn't he speak to me? He told me later. Because I was right. Because I was right. And we left and I thought, well, you know, the Lord, the Lord will have another place for me to go. And I tried, but I was angry. I was angry. And um, I decided to take that pastor and put him in a category over here of liars and insincere people. I know he's going to heaven, but I'll never trust him again. You say, Pastor, I'm, a, I'm ashamed of you. Hey, I learned it from church people. <laughs> Not you, of course. A few weeks later, I was back in school. It was in the last weeks of earning my degree, I got a phone call from him. And uh, he opened the conversation with, I owe you an apology. And I said to myself, not to him, I said, you sure do. In fact, you may owe me two or three apologies. He said, I got a letter from you today. And uh, I thought, I don't understand because I mailed a letter. By that time, it was probably three, four, four or five months, maybe four months earlier. And I said, I don't understand. I haven't, I haven't written you lately. He said, it was from you, addressed to me, and at the bottom of the letter, there was something stamped. Now, you've got to understand, when I pulled into town, 
for ordination in, to my home there in, there in Escambia Bay. In the water, there was an Eastern Airlines plane sitting in the bay. It had crashed in the bay uh, a few days earlier. And I said, yeah, I heard that on the news, you know. And I was amazed. I even went back out and looked at it. He said, at the bottom of the letter, this is what it said, recovered from the wreckage of flight, whatever it was, Eastern Airlines. It had been, it was water stained, but it was readable. But it had been in the belly of that ship, uh, of that plane rather, for weeks and weeks and weeks. He never received it. He was angry at me for not sending the letter I promised. I was angry at him for not doing what he said. And we both wrote each other off. He said, I made up my mind I would never give a recommendation for you because you promised and you didn't do it. That's the, we both put each other in the wrong camp. And I wish that we had thought to misjudge on the side of mercy. I mean, I, I know it's not just past due bills that get lost in the mail. Of course, you have, some of you don't even know what the mail is. You're, 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 everything's online now. But we both learned that if there's something we don't understand, if we think we've been done wrong, and we, we talked about this, we went to lunch, and, uh, and he bought, God bless him. We talked about it. So we'll, never, we'll never make the mistake of thinking the worst when someone, even if they act the worst. Now, that may not be a good illustration because it was just an oversight. In, 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 well, not an oversight. It was, it was something beyond any of our control. So, Pastor, what do I do? Here are the five things. Learn to give people the benefit of a doubt. There's a problem going on you may not know anything about. Number two, be the adult when there's conflict. Number three, learn to trust. Don't come in accusing, come in explaining. Even Jesus said everything he could positive before bringing condemnation to the churches of Revelation. Number four, realize we're all in this together. And number five, if I, may, if I have to make a judgment, I'm going to make it on the side of mercy. I'm going to not burn bridges. I'm not going to assume the worst. I'm going to assume all these other things. And I'm going to say, well, it looks like this, but I'm going to believe this could have been the case. You say, okay, 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 that's easy. That's just peanut butter and jelly preaching. Not when you consider it's impossible for our human nature to do any one of these five things. We need grace. Let me tell you the age in which we're living. Jesus said, because iniquity increases, because the fabric of culture begins to disintegrate, he said, the love of many will grow cold. If you get depressed looking at the news, you've got to understand that's not just bad news. That's the formula for making you lose your love. That's the formula for making you harsh and mean. 
Jesus talked to the disciples when they were facing the most disruptive moment of their lives. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I want you to understand this. Satan has desired to have you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Why? So that your faith doesn't fail. You say, Pastor, I'm not going to give up on God. That, that's not the only way our faith can fail. I mean, you, your faith can fail and you still be a Christian. It means that your faith doesn't produce what it needs to produce. And Jesus said, you're about to go through something. If you don't wrap your head around the promises I've made, you're going to find yourself going deeper and deeper down a hole so that it's hard to dig yourself out. I've been there. Most of you have been there. Some of you are there right now. But I want to tell you, he's faithful. It's, it comes down to you and him. Father, we're out of time. We need to, we need to stop. But I ask you to help people today. There are people online that have been so hurt that they don't know if they'll ever be able to trust again. There are people that have been so disappointed in other people. There have been people that are so disappointed in you because they're in that terribly difficult place where the Lord's timing and their timing doesn't match up. Oh God, I've been there and I know how frustrating that can be and I know how debilitating that can be. Lord, there's so many people here that are hurting. I'm asking you to either bring healing today or start them on the path of healing. Begin to fill their lives with joy. We need your grace. We need you to remind us that what we're hearing are lies. We need you to shield us from the attack of the enemy. We need you to focus or help us focus on the victories we've had, not the setbacks we've experienced. Lord, at the end of the day, we must be brought to the place where we believe God is good and everything he does is good. But Lord, nobody can take us there. Nobody can take us there. You have to take us there. And I'm so thankful you promised the Holy Spirit that would be our comforter and our helper. So I'm asking, Lord, you know where we are. You know where we are. And I pray in the strong name of Jesus that the devil will be rebuked and the Spirit of God would be welcomed and you take us by the hand spiritually and begin to walk us out of this deep valley, begin to walk us out of this deep pit. Father, if there's anyone that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, help them to take that first leap of faith today to give their lives to you.